Okay, let's open up to Romans chapter 1. Our text this morning is going to be Romans 1.18. I originally thought I would do Romans 1.18 to 32, because that's a big thought block, but it was too big of a thought block. So then I thought, okay, maybe Romans 1.18 to 23, that's a good chunk, but that was too big too. So this morning we're just going to focus on verse 18. And I know this is your favorite subject to contemplate this morning. Uh, We're going to be talking about the wrath of God. Because... Because it's the next subject that comes up in Romans. And Romans 1, 18. <clears throat> and here at the bridge, we are committed to all of God's Scripture, not just the parts that we enjoy, but all of it. Because all of it is good. All of it is inspired. So let's begin with prayer. Father, we want to know you in your fullness, and we pray that you would unfold another aspect of your character today to us, that you'd help us to embrace and love every aspect, every attribute of your character in all its perfection. Give us hearts that are willing to be open and to receive what your word tells us about you, and to love you for who you are, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, Paul laid out the theme of the entire book. If you want to condense the book of Romans into two verses, it's Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. And there, Paul tells us that the theme of the book of Romans is what? What is it? You're close. You're close. You're close. (laughs) But you're not there yet. No, no, that comes in verse 18. Okay, that's, that's really close, but <laughs> verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So the gospel is the theme of this book. What is the gospel? Well, verse 16, it's the power of God for salvation. What's revealed in the gospel? Verse 17, the righteousness of God. Now, there we have the theme of the gospel. Starting in verse 18, through the rest of the book, Paul is going to unpack the gospel and expound the gospel and apply the gospel to the lives of the believers in Rome. And in verses 17 and 18, he, he says that there's two things that are revealed. In verse 17, he says the righteousness of God is revealed. In verse 18, he says the wrath of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith. The right, or the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. These two things are being revealed at the same time. God's righteousness and God's wrath. And in verse 18, he begins with the word Four, that little three-letter word. Now, what is the purpose, what's the function of the word for in a sentence? Come on, you, you English teachers. <laughs> yes, it explains it. it. It gives us the reason for what he's just said. It's another, it's a synonym for the word because. So he's going to give us the reason in verse 18 for what he's just said in verse 16 and 17. In verses 16 and 17, he told us about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he's going to tell us why everybody needs that gospel. Because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, the first major section of Paul's letter is chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20. And all of that section hangs together. And what Paul is doing in that first major section is showing everybody their desperate need for the gospel. He's showing the total depravity of all men, the utter corruption and sinfulness of the human race, and why they are helpless to save themselves, why they need an alien righteousness. No men have a righteousness by which they can approach God, so God in His grace must grant them one, from outside and clothe them with his own righteousness. 
So that's the first major section. Now, I want you to notice something really interesting. Paul begins his explanation of the gospel by talking about the wrath of God. You see that? The very first thing he brings up after he gives us the theme of the letter, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. The very first thing. And this is countercultural, it's counterintuitive to us, it's diametrically opposed to most of our evangelism, because we try to avoid talking about the wrath of God, right? We think if we tell sinners about the wrath of God, that's going to scare them away. That's going to have the opposite effect of what we want. We want to attract them to Christ, and that's going to repel them if we start talking to them about the wrath of God. We, in turn, we talk about God's love and His forgiveness and His grace and His kindness and His mercy and His joy and His peace and His abundant life that He gives. So what we do is we try to get people to come to Christ by attracting them to all the wonderful benefits that we see in the gospel. And they're all there. They're all in the Bible. But what we don't do is we don't tell them about the horrible consequences of rejecting Jesus Christ. We have kind of a lopsided gospel. We tell them all the wonderful, positive, attractive elements of the gospel, but we shy away from telling them the truth about the negative consequences of not believing Jesus Christ. So we told only the positive parts. We neglect the negative parts. Now, Paul did not use our slick Madison Avenue sales techniques when it came to spreading the gospel. Paul began by speaking about God's wrath. How many times have you shared the gospel with somebody else and you said, oh, by the way, did you know that God's wrath is revealed against your ungodliness? Have you ever witnessed to somebody and told them about the wrath of God? Well, why not? (laughs) <laughs> is, it, is it because it's unbiblical to do so? We don't do it because we're cowards, right? We just don't have the courage to tell people what the Bible says. Well, part of it is we don't want to scare them away. The other part is we just are not brave enough to do it. Our sharing about God's love and forgiveness will never come home to a sinner with power until that sinner understands God's wrath and justice. In other words, how can that person understand forgiveness until they understand the penalty of sin? Right? How can they understand God's love until they understand His hatred of sin? Men will not seek salvation until they understand that God's wrath is upon them. John the Baptist came with a message for the religious leaders of his day, and he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So today, our message, because it's the next verse in the book of Romans, is the wrath of God. And, you know, there's a lot to say about this. I I wanted to kind of gloss over it. I don't think we should. I think we should just slow down and meditate. This is one of God's attributes. Do you want to really know God? You have to understand this then. Because you'll never really understand the fullness of God unless you understand this. It's part of His character. It's part of His perfections that we as His Christians, His his people, His children need to understand. So, we're going to focus on three aspects of God's wrath. The source of wrath, the timing of wrath, and the objects of wrath. So first of all, the source of wrath. Verse 18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What's its source? It's the wrath of who? This is God's wrath. We just I mean, that's a simple observation, but stop long enough to just let that sink in. This is not human wrath. This is divine wrath we're talking about. Where does it come from? Heaven. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, verse 17 says, The righteousness of God is revealed from faith. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. This is God's wrath just as much as it's God's righteousness. And in verse 1, just as much as it's God's gospel. These things belong to God. His righteousness 
and his wrath. They belong to him. Now, this is where we stumble, right? Somehow in the back of our mind, we think it's really not right for God to be wrathful. Like That kind of mars his perfections because we think of wrath as being sinful. We think of ourselves, we lose our temper. We lose self-control and we just blow it and we just burn, blow up at somebody. And, and that's not right. And we think, oh, God's just blowing up. God's just losing his temper. There's, and we, we think that there's a, a defect in God's character or a blight on God's character if he happens to be wrathful. But what I want to show you is back in our reading from last week as a church, Exodus 33 and Exodus 34, I saw something that just was really wonderful. So in Exodus 33, in verse 18, Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, okay, I'll make my goodness pass before you. And then in chapter 34, verse 6, Then the Lord passed by. God says, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. Next chapter, the Lord passed by, and he proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet... He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So do you see that when God wanted to show Moses his glory and his goodness, he talks about his love, forgiveness, compassion, all of that, but he also talks about his strict justice. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In other words, God will pour out his wrath on evil and sin. That's part of God's goodness, and it's part of God's glory. And without it, God would not be manifesting his full glory. There would be something lacking in God's perfections if wrath was not present. James 1.20 says that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And somehow we superimpose the anger of man onto God, and we ought not do that, because God's anger is wholly different from our anger. God's anger is never sinful. See, God is not embarrassed about his wrath. God's not ashamed that he is a God of wrath. He's never tried to hide the fact that he's wrathful or conceal the fact. In fact, you can't read your Bible for 15 minutes without running into the wrath of God. It's everywhere in the Bible. So God's not embarrassed by this. God wants you to know that this is part of his holy perfections that we need to embrace. There is no blemish in God, but there would be a blemish in God if wrath were absent from him, because indifference to sin is a moral blemish. If God were indifferent to evil, that would make God somehow deficient. How could an all-holy God look with equal satisfaction upon righteousness and evil? Or how could he ignore sin and refuse to manifest his displeasure of sin? Do you see how God has to react against evil? And that reaction against evil is wrath on the part of God. So let's try to define the wrath of God for a minute. I, I'm going to define the wrath of God as this. God's wrath is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. Detestation means hatred. It is God's holy displeasure and righteous indignation against all evil. It's the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. Because God is holy, he hates all sin, and because he hates all sin, his anger burns against the sinner. Now, we have been taught that God hates the sin but loves the sinner, but the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches in Psalm 711, God is angry with the wicked every day. God's angry with sinners every day. And we've been taught to present the gospel like this. God loves you, and God has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I want you to analyze that statement biblically. Is that true? Maybe. 
Part of it, at least, is. I think a more biblical way to say it is, God loves you, but he's angry with you on account of your rebellion. And he commands you to repent. And if you refuse, you will face a terrifying eternity. Now that's biblical. That's biblical. That encapsulates the love of God and the wrath of God. We're giving the whole counsel of God to people when we tell them this. Now, years back, I was really intrigued by, I wonder what the Bible talks more about. Does it talk more about his love or his wrath? And so I looked up all the synonyms to wrath, like fury, terror, wrath, judgment, condemnation, and I, I just went through my uh, concordance and I counted up all the references. And then I went over here to all the synonyms for God's love, like grace and mercy and forgiveness and compassion, counted all those references up. I came up with about 1,200 references to wrath and about 800 references to God's love. So this side over here, if, if they're on scales, the Bible talks more about his wrath than it does talk about his love. I mean, this is not some little side, little subject of the Bible that we can scoot off and say, well, it doesn't really have any relevance. This is a huge issue in Scripture that we have to wrestle with as Christians. So as we get started, I want to give you a sampling, just a really quick, and this is a brief, very brief sampling. I could give you dozens and dozens and dozens of Scriptures about this, but just a few Old Testament references and a few New Testament references. And before we do that, let me just say this. When is the last time you have heard someone write a song that they played on, like a a contemporary Christian artist, write a song about the wrath of God? Hymn writers used to write about that. Because it was part, it was who God is. Oh, we don't do it anymore. Especially in America, we don't do it anymore. Maybe there's other places of the world where, where people are more biblical than us, but we have, we have a very candy-coated approach to the gospel here in America. It's very watered-down, saccharine, <laughs> ineffective, because we don't include the whole counsel of God. But here's our Old Testament sampling. Let's go to Psalm 2. Just look quickly at verse 12. Psalm 2.12. Do homage to the sun. And this is interesting because they're talking about the sun hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. Do homage to the sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we, we kind of are repelled by the idea that Jesus is wrathful. Jesus' wrath, the Son's wrath may soon be kindled. I thought gentle Jesus, meek and mild, he's the Lamb of God. Well, we're forgetting Revelation chapter 6 that talks about the wrath of the Lamb. Right? That he's coming back not as a lion, but I mean not as a lamb, but as a lion to bring judgment. Or Psalm 78 verses 49 to 51. Psalm 78, 49. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels. He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death, but gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility and the tents of Ham. Let's move further in the book of Psalms to Psalm 90. We're going to look at verse 7 and 11. Psalm 90 verse 7 says, For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. Verse 11, Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? Let's go to the prophet Isaiah and see what, just a a quick sampling of what comes out in the prophets. This is Isaiah 34 verse 2. For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to slaughter. Isaiah 63. 
verses 3 through 6. Isaiah 63, verse 3. I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my garments. I mean, this is the picture of Jesus trampling down a bunch of grapes and all the juice of the grapes getting all over his clothes, except it's not grapes, it's people, and their blood is getting all over his garments. That's the imagery here. Verse 4 says, For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Let's look at a minor prophet now. The little prophecy of Nahum. And if you have a hard time finding it, you're in good company, because it's not easy to find. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. So it's right after Micah. Nahum. Verses 2 and 3, and then verse 6 of chapter 1. So Nahum, verse, chapter 1, verse 2. A jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. In whirlwind and storm is his way, and clouds are the dust beneath his feet. Verse 6, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the burning of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken up by him. It's hard to, un- to imagine any more forceful language that these authors could, could write to describe the wrath of God. And you say, okay, well, yeah, I guess there are references to the wrath of God in the Old Testament, but isn't the God of the Old Testament a wrathful God, and the God of the New Testament a loving God? Rico says, yeah. Well, let's see. Let's see. Let's let's turn to the New Testament and see what it says about the wrath of God. Is there anything at all in the New Testament about God's wrath? John three thirty six. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Or the words of John the Baptist: "You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee?" from the wrath to come. Or let's look at our own book, the book of Romans. We're not there yet, but we will be soon. Well, maybe in a few months. (laughs) But Romans chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. Paul writes there, But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by persevering and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. Storing up wrath in the day of wrath. Or, how about the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 26 and 27 and 30 and 31. Hebrews 10, 26 says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Verse 30 For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I think people don't understand that verse in America. No one's afraid of God. There's no fear of God. In fact, in Romans 3, there's no fear of God before their eyes. People don't. They ought to. It's a terrifying thing for them to fall into the hands of the living God if just their eyes were open to it. Let's look at one more of this brief sampling from the New Testament and it's Revelation chapter 14, 
Verses 10 and 11. Revelation 14, verse 10. He also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. So is the God of the New Testament lacking in the attribute of wrath? No. The God of the Old Testament was a God of love and a God of wrath at the same time. The God of the New Testament is a God of love and a God of wrath at the same time. Now, why are we so hesitant to speak of God's wrath? If we were to go back in time, listen, I've always wished I could go in one of those time travel machines and go back in time and just kind of see what life was like. Really love history. And I'm really intrigued by Jonathan Edwards. But there's, there's one sermon that Jonathan Edwards preached that everybody has heard about. Maybe you've never read it, but everyone's heard sinners in the hands of what kind of a God? An angry God. It seems like Jonathan Edwards wasn't embarrassed to talk about God's wrath. In fact, it it was this sermon that God really used in the conversion of multitudes of people during the First Great Awakening uh, along the east coast of the colonies here in these United States. And preachers during that period of time, you know, we kind of make fun of them and call them hellfire and damnation preachers. Um, Think of their mode of... Preaching was so archaic and so outmoded and they really don't know anything about the love of God. I think they knew more than we do because we can't begin to understand the love and grace of God until we see that God is a God of, of justice and of vengeance and of fury and of wrath. It's Him. It's all of Him. I think we don't speak about God's wrath because we feel... It's taboo in our contemporary culture. It's taboo. We've been conditioned to think wrongly. We've been conditioned to think anti-biblically. If we just, if we were on a deserted island somewhere and all we had was this book, we wouldn't think twice talking about the wrath of God because it's everywhere in this book. But we've been conditioned, we've got to put blinders on and we've got not to talk about this because it just makes people uncomfortable and we don't like to make anybody uncomfortable. We feel we need to apologize for God. But God's anger is only anger when it's actually called for. God's wrath isn't cruelty because cruelty is always immoral. But God's wrath is strictly just and righteous. And it's given to those who have actually chosen it for themselves. So that's the source of wrath. The source comes from God, comes from heaven. Now what does Paul tell us about the timing of wrath? He says it is revealed. He doesn't say it was revealed, and he doesn't say it will be revealed. He says it is It's in the present tense in the Greek language. It's the exact same tense as verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed. Well, when is the righteousness of God revealed? Right now? When is the wrath of God revealed? Right now? (laughs) God has been revealing His wrath since the beginning of time, and He continually reveals His wrath through time, all the way up until the end, and then he will tremendously reveal his wrath on Judgment Day. But he's revealing it now. It's not something only to be left for the future. God is constantly revealing his wrath. Think about the beginning of time. God created Adam and Eve. They sinned. And God immediately brought curses upon the serpent, upon childbearing, upon work, and upon all of creation. And then he banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He poured out his wrath as soon as sin entered in. Or let's go to a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, to chapter 6. There it says, Every 
intent of the thought of their hearts was only evil continually. And how does God respond? He sends a flood to destroy every living thing. Pours out his wrath upon the world. Or go a few chapters later in the book of Genesis, where the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah had been risen to God. What does God do? He sends fire and brimstone and destroys those two cities. Or let's go further. We just have been reading about this in our reading in Exodus. He takes the Egyptian, the whole Egyptian army, and he drowns them in the Red Sea. Wipes them out. Wipes out a whole army at one time. No doubt thousands and thousands of people. Or let's go further in the Old Testament. He sends King Saul through Samuel the prophet to go to the Amalekites and to destroy every living person. And this is hard to accept, but I'm going to tell you that it was, it was children, it was men, it was women, it was even beasts. They were to wipe out everything. And when Saul did not obey, God called him on the carpet for that. He poured out his wrath on that, on that nation, the Amalekites. Later, he pours out his wrath in a different sort of way on the Israelites themselves. He raises up the Assyrians who come in, who take the Israelites captive and deport them back to Assyria. He pours out his wrath on his own covenant people, in a sense. But the the greatest manifestation of God's wrath ever was not in any of those events. It was in the person of Jesus Christ as he hung upon the cross, bearing the wrath of God against humanity. You know that word propitiation in your Bibles? means a wrath-averting sacrifice. Christ is our propitiation. God hurled his fury against evil and sin upon Jesus Christ. The greatest display of all. So God has continually been revealing his wrath to the human race. It should be no news to us that God is wrathful. But compared to how God is going to reveal his wrath on Judgment Day, we've only seen a trickle. It's like, it's like Hoover Dam. The Colorado River flows into this valley and we have constructed a dam, Hoover Dam, and it collects the water and the water keeps flowing in, and and the water keeps rising and rising and rising higher and higher. When it gets too high, we let some of that water out at the base of the dam so it doesn't overflow the top. But what would happen if Hoover Dam broke? You know how many gallons of water are in that lake? I do, because I googled it. Ten trillion gallons of water would be released at one time, hurling out of that that canyon, destroying everything in its wake. When Paul says in Romans 2.5, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath, it's like a dam. God, God's patience is like a dam, holding it back. But one day, that dam is going to break. And he's going to reveal to all the world, all the universe, his wrath against evil and unrighteousness. So that's the timing of wrath. But what about the objects? Who are the objects of God's wrath? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God's wrath is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is provoked and God is offended by sin because sin devalues God. Sin, the really, the root and essence of sin is exchanging the true and living God for something else. It's turning your back on the true God for something lesser and worshiping that as your God. That's really the root. We're going to see that as we get into the rest of Romans 1. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the essence, the root of sin. 
God is offended and provoked when people turn their back on Him who is infinitely greater than anything else and, and they worship this, this, this petty, little, valueless, cheap thing. And God, God says, what are you doing? I'm here. They don't want God. They've turned their backs on God. So who is God's wrath against? Who are those that are unrighteous and ungodly? Well, Paul tells us in chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And then in verse 23, he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So who are the objects of God's wrath, according to Paul himself? The human race. Well, let me ask you another question. When does a person come under the wrath of God? When does that happen? Does it happen when they pass the age of accountability? I'm still looking for that in my Bible. I've never found that phrase, the age of accountability in my Bible. We've constructed it because we want to believe that people under a certain age are somehow innocent, but I don't find that in Scripture. Is it when someone commits a really heinous crime, like rape or murder, then God's wrath will come upon them? Is it when they die in an unforgiven state, that's when God's wrath comes upon them? Well, let's look what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3. Ephesians 2, 3 says, Among them we too, all, formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And what does he mean by nature? He says, we, just like everybody else, by nature were children of wrath even as everybody else in the world. He means by human nature. Human nature is fallen. Every human being is fallen. So by nature, by birth, you're a child of wrath. I'm a child of wrath. That means there's no babies and infants in the world that are innocent before Almighty, all-holy God. You see, even those babies have inherited the virus of sin. Adam has passed it down to all of his offspring. We received it when we came into this world. And it's only a matter of time till that virus breaks out into all kinds of evil actions in our life, all kinds of evil attitudes, all kinds of selfishness and self-centeredness. So that little baby is not holy in the sight of God. He's inherited corruption. And if it's our child, he inherited it from us. We passed it down to him. So that's when people come under the wrath of God, when they become a human being and they inherit this sin nature. Are there any people in this world that are not under the wrath of God? Well, Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. If there were any people that weren't under the wrath of God, they would have to be righteous and they would have to be godly. Right? Because His wrath is against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. Are there any righteous and godly people in the world? Okay, don't think about being righteous in yourself. That's what verse 17 had to say. Verse 17 is talking about the gift of righteousness that God gives through faith in Jesus Christ. Or is there anybody in the world who has faith in Jesus Christ and have received the gift of righteousness? Yes. Yes, praise God. We, I hope all of you, are trusting in the merits of Jesus Christ. If you are, His righteousness has covered you like a garment. You see... 
Righteousness is talking about being justified. Godliness is talking about being regenerated. Being born again. Through justification, we are the righteousness of God. Through being born again, we become godly. In other words, God-like. We begin to imitate God because His Spirit is working in us. You see, the, the line of demarcation in all of this is faith. That's what he says in verse 17. God's righteousness comes to those from faith to faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. All who have this saving faith in Jesus Christ are saved from God's wrath. All who do not have it are under His wrath. Now, let's draw some conclusions this morning. I've got three of them for you. The first one is, imitate God. God is a God of wrath and a God of love, and you are to imitate Him in both His love and His wrath. I'm not telling you to go out and flip your lid or, you know, blow it and just get, get sinfully angry. I'm talking about the fact that God is offended by sin. God is offended by evil. God reacts to moral evil. And if we imitate God, we ought to be reacting to moral evil too. If we are indifferent to the sin around us, that shows us something's wrong with us. We're like the frog in the kettle, you know, Our culture has been changing and we just change right along with it and we don't see anything wrong with same-sex marriage because it's so prevalent. We don't see anything wrong with homosexuality because if you say anything against that, you're going to get lambasted by somebody. We we don't see anything wrong with murder. I guess we do with that one. That's still socially unacceptable. But but we should be offended by what God is offended by. God is offended by divorce. He hates it. But we just kind of accept it because it's everywhere, it's so prevalent, we, it, we've just become used to it. God is offended by murder, and yet we have millions of unborn human beings that are murdered throughout the years here in America. And that provokes God's wrath. God is provoked by homosexuality. God is provoked by racial injustice when certain classes of people are treated unjustly just because of the color of their skin or their ethnic background. God is provoked by murder and sex trafficking and stealing, and the list would go on and on. Now, if these things don't bother us in the least, we've got to check our hearts. Why not? Am I like God? The Bible says in Ephesians 5, imitate God as beloved children. We should imitate God in His wrath. That doesn't mean that we go out and start beating people up because of the sin we see in their life, but it means, like in in Genesis 6, it says God was grieved in his heart that he had made man. His wrath took the form of grief. He was grieving over the fact that he had made man and they're, they're so sinful and corrupt and turned their back on him. There should be a sense of grief in our hearts too when we see the, the evil and the corruption in our world. In Hebrews 1.9 where it speaks about Jesus Christ, it says, I'm going to turn there real quick. Hebrews 1, verse 9. Speaking of Christ, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. That's Jesus. He hates lawlessness. He loves righteousness. Brothers and sisters, that ought to be our testimony. We hate iniquity and we love righteousness. So that's the first thing I want to challenge you with this morning. Where is your heart? Can you really identify with God when it comes to His wrath? Secondly, speak of God. Tell people the truth about God. Never be afraid or embarrassed to tell people about God's wrath. John the Baptist wasn't afraid of that. Jesus wasn't afraid of that. Jesus spoke about the wrath of God to come. The Apostle Paul wasn't afraid of it. The Apostle Peter spoke of his wrath. All the Apostles, Jesus, John, everybody in the New Testament talks about his wrath, but we were so afraid to let the cat out of the bag. Oh, there is this other aspect of God that I don't want to even mention to you. No. And we should not be intimidated by people talking, well, you're just a hellfire and damnation preacher. Well, call it what you want. I just want to be biblical. If the Bible speaks about this, I want to follow and talk about what the Bible says. Now maybe I speak to people 
I should speak to them if I'm going to bring this subject up with a great deal of concern for their soul. Not just nonchalantly, with no concern. Maybe even with tears in your eyes when you tell people about the wrath of God. But you shouldn't avoid the subject. All men need to be warned. Paul did that on Mars Hill. He said, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in judgment in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed by raising him from the dead. That was the climax to Paul's sermon. So I want to encourage you to speak honestly and passionately with people. And you know, I think if we, if we, if they know that we love them, if they know that we have a genuine concern for them, they'll be able to hear us. It's when we don't care about them and we just go off and start talking about God's wrath that people just tune us out. But if they know that you love them, that you, you want their best interests, I think they'll hear us. I remember when we used to do some neighborhood investigative Bible studies. And looking back on it, I really liked the way it was laid out because it, we did five weeks. The first week, what does the Bible teach about itself? Next week, what does the Bible teach about God? Then, what does the Bible teach about man? And then, what does the Bible teach about Jesus? And then, what does the Bible teach about salvation? So right at the very beginning, we're telling people, what does the Bible teach about God? And we laid it out. I mean, we, we didn't really have to preach. We, we all opened our Bibles and we said, would you read that verse? What do you see there? We just read it. And they would discover what the Bible actually says about this God who created them. And I think it's important that at the beginning, we lay out for people, who is this God that we believe exists, who is the creator and redeemer? So we should imitate God, we should speak of God, and we should also seek God. What do I mean by that? I mean that you and I need to be sure that we have been saved from his wrath. And if you're not sure, you need to seek him until you know that that's the case. Paul says later in Romans 5, verse 9, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Who's going to be saved from the wrath of God? Those who are justified by his blood. That's exactly what he said in chapter 1. Those who receive the gift of righteousness in verse 17, they're saved from the wrath of God in verse 18. Have you been justified by the blood of Christ? What's your hope? What are you trusting in? If you stood before God today, and he said, why should I allow you into my heaven? Are you going to say, well, because I was a pretty good person, Lord. I, I tried really hard. I tried to keep the golden rule. I tried to do unto others as I wanted them to do unto me. I was pretty moral. I mean, of course, I made a few mistakes along the way. Do you see what you're doing? You're pointing back to you. What God wants you to do is point away from you, point to Christ and his blood, and say, Lord, Christ died for my sins. I've received his grace by faith. I can't recommend myself to you, Lord. You know that I'm a sinner. You know that I've failed. You know that I can't stand before you. But Lord, I don't stand in myself. My trust, my hope is in Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. He's my Redeemer. He's my surety. He's my mediator. He's my propitiation. He's my all in all. I have no other hope but Him. I, 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 I'm not trusting in this or that or that. He is all my hope. Do you see? 100%, not 99.9, everything. All my eggs are in one basket. If Jesus fails me, I'm going to hell because I don't have any other hope but Him. That's the only place we can stand if we want to be accepted before God is in Christ alone. Great hymn. In Christ alone. So is all of your trust in Jesus? Is it all there? That's the question. If you're not sure, seek Him. Go to God. 
Go on bended knee. Cast yourself in His mercy. Ask God to save you for Christ's sake. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He's near. He may still be found by you today. He's still near today. There's coming a day when He will not be found and He won't be near anymore. There'll be no other opportunities for you. You still have an opportunity to repent. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and let him return to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God invites you to come to him. And if there's any doubt whether you're his child, go to him today. Cast yourself on his mercy and trust in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you when he lived for you, when he died for you, and when he rose for you. And God will grant you assurance that he has brought you into his family and his wrath has been passed by and Jesus has taken it and you are delivered, saved, rescued by what he did. Father, we want to give you great praise that we stand in your beloved Son. We stand in the place where the fire already has passed on those ashes, and so no fire can touch us. The fire of your wrath has already been spent upon Jesus. All your arrows have been hurled into his breast. All your bullets have been expended. They're gone, and he's taken them. There's no more arrows, there's no more bullets, there's no more fire, because we are... <coughs> are putting all of our hope and trust in what He accomplished for us. Lord, we pray that we would become more biblical in our understanding of You and that we would love You for Your sake. And this we pray through Jesus. Amen. Amen.